many people have been asking me, how do I get my podcast up and running that quickly? Well, the secret is Anchor. It's the easiest way to make a podcast. And it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. It can also help you to distribute a podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. And you can make money from a podcast too, with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. If you're interested, find out more. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Level Up, a podcast where I speak with guests and experts on how they are enabling organizations to become ready for the future of work. Whether it is through meditation practice or an app to help employees better manage their personal finances, my guests have one thing in common, and that is to help level up your organizations through your people. My name is Adrian Tan, and I'm your host of Level Up. My guest today is Miss Erin Lee. She's the founder and mindfulness coach of Mindful Moments Singapore. Erin is a certified mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher, better known as MBSR, as recognized by the Mindfulness-Based Professional Training Institute at the University of California San Diego Center for Mindfulness. She has completed the UCSD School of Medicine's Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Teacher Training Intensive, as well as Advanced Teacher Training Intensive for MBSR and MBCT teachers in California. Erin conducts mindfulness training for corporate clients and organizations in both English and Chinese, and is also an experienced polytechnic lecturer. Could you just start by telling us how did you manage to get into meditation? I was actually working in corporate communications many years back. And back then, I was a really hard worker and I was what people would call a chronic burnout sufferer. So what happened was I would um, devote myself to a job, I would exhaust myself, burn myself out, have a total breakdown and then quit the job and then I would uh, find another job to jump into again and repeat the whole cycle again. So that was my corporate life uh, for about 10 years. And uh, my last corporate communications job was in Beijing. And that was kind of like the last straw on the camel's back. And I realized that I really needed to take a step back from what I was doing and to really start paying more attention to myself. And uh, what was amazing was that once I started really paying attention to myself, I realized that I really wasn't taking care of myself in terms of my both mental and physical well-being. And that was when I realized that, you know, I had to stop whatever that I was doing. And I started exploring different avenues, different channels that would help me to improve my state of mind and, 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 and health. So, yeah, so that was when I went through hypnotherapy. I was a hypnotherapist for a while. And then I also got in touch with meditation and mindfulness. And in particular, meditation and mindfulness really resonated with me. I started practicing it very seriously. I got myself trained. And that was when I decided I really wanted to teach what I myself was practicing. And that's, that's what got me to where I am today. Let's see, you mentioned about the burnt out that you experienced before Paul started into your whole journey. I personally also experienced a lot of burnt out. Uh, in mm-hmm. fact, towards the tail end of my first business, I remember crying in front of my secretary and it was really bad. Uh, but oh, wow. that might be a bit of an extreme. So in your mm-hmm. case, could you help to share with the audience what are some symptoms that you personally experienced when you mentioned burnt out? Mm-hmm. Okay, so essentially burnout is sort of like the end sort of like an end point to accumulated stress. So back then, I, I was really just throwing myself into my work and I, I wasn't 
aware at all about my my state of mind. And essentially, I had a lot of negative, self-defeating thoughts, thoughts of self-doubt. And at the same time, I was also, you know, holding on to to this identity that I was, you know, a, a good employee. I I was good at what I do, and I had to be really good at what I do. I couldn't make any mistakes, right? So I, I was, it was very, it was a state of tension, very, very huge tension, um, perpetually every single day. And some of the symptoms, I guess, when I realized that I was stressed was when I would, like you mentioned, I would cry, you know, just, just out of nowhere, right? It could be just in the middle of a work task and then I would start tearing uh, and, and the tears couldn't stop, right? And, or it would be after work hours and everyone has left and I was all alone in the dark office and I would start crying and crying, but I couldn't bring myself to stop working. So it's, it's in a sense, it's like a part of my mind and my body was like on clockwork and just trying to get through and just get everything done. But then my awareness and my sanity was at a different place and, and I was essentially trying to, to save myself. Of course, with the mind comes the body as well. So the body was feeling a lot too. So every day I would wake up uh, feeling that the body was really heavy. Uh, my One part of my mind would be telling me I need to get to work, but my body just refused to get out of bed. I would have to drag myself to work. And of course, uh, my health suffered because when we were stressed, immunity suffers and I was really falling sick every every few weeks and I would take a long time to recover. So those were, you know, those were the signs and these symptoms just keep repeating themselves over over and over again in the cycles. Yeah. I see. And how do you think that meditation has helped you in in a very evidence-based way because I personally also meditate and I was quite hesitant to begin because despite reading so much stuff about meditation, I mm -hmm. always have this connotation that is some airy-fairy kumbaya kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So perhaps you can help us to understand a bit more. And I understand that your, your kind of meditation is what is known as MBSR. Could you also help to elaborate what exactly that is? Sure, sure. So maybe I can just uh, cover a little bit about how I got into meditation in the first place. So after I quit my corporate job, and maybe I'll touch a little bit about what got me to quit my job. And I actually, you know, uh, for, you know, just to be more practical, I didn't actually quit. I actually um, just switched from a part-time to a full-time corporate communications consultant. So I really took some time to just explore what I wanted. But what really got me to switch from part time, uh, full time to part time was during this PR event. And, you know, it, it, everything was very familiar, whatever that I did uh, during that event itself. I was doing a good job. But then there was also this moment that sort of clicked for me. And that's when I realized that um, my body was just felt really, really heavy and really tired. So it sort of felt like, it's just this whole pent-up tension that was waiting to be released at that moment. And that was when I it really clicked in me that, oh, this is what it feels like to be totally exhausted. And the strange thing is I had never noticed how tired my body was before. And that was something really, really new to me. It was very interesting. It's like my whole body, every cell was infused with exhaustion. So it was a very interesting discovery for me to just turn my attention to my body like that. And that sort of got me into exploring more about uh, just looking inside at my mind and body. I did a little bit of um, Googling to find sort of like meditation retreats. And I found meditation retreats. So I'm essentially a Vipassana practitioner. And so I went for my first 10-day 
silent meditation retreat. And during this retreat itself, we would do nothing every day except to meditate and sleep and eat and meditate and sleep and eat. Essentially, that was 10 days and it was in silence. So uh, free from distractions, you know, no phone, no nothing. And we're just sitting down every day and basically observing the body in, in, a, in a specific way, in a specific approach. So there came a day, I think it was the fifth or sixth day, when we were encouraged to be still for one full hour. That means we couldn't uh, move our legs, we couldn't move our hands, we couldn't open the eyes, and we were just to persevere and to sit for one hour straight. And that was when, you know, if, if, you, if you haven't sat for a long time, it's actually quite painful to sit for, for one hour straight. So I was experiencing a lot of pain. I don't think I've ever experienced so much pain in my life. And of course, being the you know overachiever in me, I really, really wanted to stay still. I didn't want to move for that hour. So that was when the, the, the practice itself really got me to change my relationship with my body. So typically when we meet with pain, uh, the first thing that we do is we, wanna, we want the pain to go away or we take some medication or, you know, we remove, we try to distract ourselves and do something else. But in that meditation retreat, I couldn't do, you know, anything but to just sit there and watch the pain and practice in the way that I was taught. So by observing my body and also the nature of the mind and how I was resisting my own pain, I realized that a lot of times I was, you know, adding on to my own pain by reacting to that physical pain. So my body was painful, was in pain. And then my mind was literally just screaming, screaming at myself, like, why are you so stupid? Why do you put yourself in this situation? You're such an idiot, you know? So all the negative thoughts came in. And it was interesting to just witness all that and to realize that, hey, I didn't have to add to the pain that I was already suffering from. So this is essentially the gist of what got me really intrigued in, in this approach, in this meditation approach, it's really not a form of relaxation that a lot of people think meditation is. Although you can feel relaxed with meditation, but essentially it, the purpose is not for you to relax. The purpose is for us to be more aware of ourselves and to see how we might be um, adding on to the, the stresses that life already presents to us. So this this is one key understanding that I hope uh, a lot of us, especially, you know, when we are highly stressed working professionals would understand is that, you know, we can't control what kind of stresses that life would throw to us, but we can change our relationship to that stress. And that's, that's where stress management comes in. It's not really about removing stress from our lives, but really changing how we relate to that stress. So it got me to to realize that, you know, this way of meditating and changing my relationship to my pain, how might I apply this to the to my work, to my area of work? So I can't control, for example, the amount of workload that I have, but I can control how, how I relate to this workload that I have, right? I can't remove that, but I can learn to not add on with negative or self-defeating thoughts. I learn to watch my thought patterns without further reacting to them and uh, essentially to you know, to take a step back when I need to. So this is this is the core of the practice. It always starts out by just noticing the nature of the mind, the nature of the body, and then our relationship with anything in this world. I don't know if that sounds a little abstract at this point, Adrian. 
Well, I, I think it really does resonate with me because when I first started out meditation a few years back, it was quite an on and off affair. Mm. And like what you said earlier on, I took it from the notion that it's going to help me to relax. Mm. But it doesn't really help me to relax. In fact, it made me more tensed up. Uh, which I guess to your second point about it helping you to be more aware of mm. what is really affecting you, which I mm. guess is perhaps why you went into MBSR, although yeah. you started in Vipassana. So mm. maybe maybe for the benefit of the audience, could you help to elaborate about what exactly is MBSR and how different is it from the different kind of common meditation methods out there? Mm. Okay. So MBSR stands for Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. So I'm certified to teach this particular program. It is an eight-week uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction program. So essentially, if you go through this program, you would go through uh, eight weekly sessions with the teacher, for example, me, and I would be bringing you through uh, the practice of mindfulness, the foundational practices of mindfulness. Each session is about two and a half hours, and we would do not only experiential practice, but also doing inquiry into your experience and also group discussions on, you know, the common humanities of stress and how to apply what we learned or the insights we gained from uh, the practice itself into our day-to-day lives, for example, work stress. So this program is very popular in, in the West and also starting in, in Singapore and Asia as well. So we see I've had a lot of uh, working professionals participate in this program in order to change their relationship with stress. So essentially, going through eight weeks will effectively give you two, two full months of continuous practice because in between the weekly sessions, we are also practicing daily at home by ourselves. So we are essentially trying to establish a, a daily practice to kickstart a, a, and to sustain a daily practice. So MBSR is a very structured approach. And when I first started, it was actually not it wasn't designed or meant for you know everyday people with everyday stresses. It was actually rolled out in a, in a hospital setting with patients with chronic illnesses or chronic pain. So they were suffering um, a lot from health conditions. They were depressed. They were anxious, and some of them, you know, they were even wheelchairs or they were bedridden, and they couldn't you know meditate in a in a very conventional way like we see people sitting cross-legged on the floor. So the you know the program was uh, developed by Professor John Kabat-Zinn then, and it was it, it received a lot of impact, positive impact on the people who practiced it. And so over time, it became more and more popular. It sort of evolved, and now you know they're training teachers worldwide to be able to teach this program to 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 basically adults or you know working adults or you know just just adults in general of course if you want to teach children then you know there are different approaches but essentially mbsr is more meant for adults this might be different from say other meditation approaches out there where you know there are many kinds of meditations out there essentially there's some meditations that you know require you to be visualizing stuff so you're using imagery Right. Uh, there are some meditations that require you to be chanting mantras in order to concentrate your mind. Some people, they infuse mindfulness or meditation with uh, movement practices like yoga, like Tai Chi. So MBSR, um, in MBSR itself, we focus a lot, not just on concentration, but also what we call observation skills. So with every mindfulness practice that we do, we're actually learning to observe the mind and the body through 
practices in both stillness and movement and in various postures. So we could be standing up, we could be sitting down on the chair, sitting down on the floor, we could be lying down flat on the back, we could be walking. And in all these postures, these postures relate to our daily life postures. So essentially, when we practice this way in MBSR, we learn to transfer these skills into our day-to-day life. So whichever posture that you're in, in whatever activities that you do in day-to-day life, whether you're keeping still, let's say you are queuing up to buy your favorite chicken rice or something, or you're walking from one place to another, or you're in a meeting, speaking with people, interacting with people, or you're lying down in bed and you can't sleep, all these moments, you're able to practice mindfulness. So essentially, this is what you would go through in an MBSR program. I see. So basically looking at taking any opportunity out there to practice mindfulness. And I have personally been through one of your uh, workshops during the intro mm-hmm. run to understand mm-hmm. a bit more uh, mm-hmm. and understand that it's an eight-week course. But for, for some people out there who may be new to this, to them, eight weeks might be a bit too extreme. It's just like for mm-hmm. me, a 10-day retreat may be too extreme. For, yeah. but, but, but for them, they may still be keen to try out meditation. How would, mm-hmm. What would you advise them to take that first baby step to give it a go? Okay. Essentially, there are many resources out there, but I I just wanted to say that MBSR, even though it's eight weeks long, it's actually considered as sort of like a foundational program. Essentially, we can see this as learning any skill out there. You know, we, we have to take time to build that skill. And eight weeks or two months is sort of like a starting point for us to sort of get the mind and the body and the neurology of the brain to get used to this kind of practicing. So, and that's why it's eight weeks long. You really do need that long in order to establish yourself in that skill. But of course, and through my experience, the MBSR programs that I've offered so far are open to the public. So people who have uh, come to me to do this program, you know, they are already invested themselves in in this practice. So they, they really want to see that change. And I also understand that a lot of people also, you know, they want to try it out. They want to see whether it's suitable for them or not. And so you're right. So baby steps is the way. So what I would recommend is uh, to always, first of all, to read up more on mindfulness itself and to understand why we want to practice. So we have to get the intentions right. We have to understand the intentions, right? So it's, it's essentially not for us to just, you know, live a life of relaxation or, you know, like a YOLO life or something, right? You only live once. It's, it's not really like that. It really takes a lot of hard work. So reading up on the intentions really helps as well. There are many uh, articles out there about mindfulness practice and how it's being applied. And secondly, I have known some people to start practicing on their own, and that's possible as well. We have many, you know, guided audios online, whether it's you know on YouTube or on meditation apps or mindfulness apps uh, that you can follow. So that's one avenue. Another way that we could do this might be through community practice. So looking around your vicinity, your area, and, you know, whether it's in person or online, you can, you know, sort of look at some teachers who may be offering these online community practice. They could be free, they could be charged, but, you know, just just getting into this and just experiencing it. It's not enough to understand mindfulness intellectually. You have to really uh, experience it to understand what it is and how it might benefit you. So looking and also looking at practicing in a community is important. A lot of people who come to me to take the MBSR program, uh, they wanted the program uh, partly because it was 
learning in a group setting. And learning in a group, in a community is really, really crucial for being established in mindfulness because when you share, when you learn in a group, you're motivating one another and you're learning from one another as well. You are exposed to the common humanities of stress and, and, and pain and suffering and you sort of see, oh, I'm not alone in this. And that by itself can motivate us. So, you know, and a lot of people who come to take this MBSR program, they themselves had tried out the apps, the meditation apps. And essentially what they find is the apps are really good. They're very, very helpful. But then they, over time, they have trouble sustaining their practice. So they could start off by, you know, oh, listening to something every day and practicing every day. But then it slowly sort of tapers off and they find it hard to motivate themselves to continue or they don't know whether they're doing it right. So my recommendation is that uh, it's always good to look for teachers who are more um, trained or more experienced than you in this area and to be able to get some proper guidance just to make sure that you practice in a more effective way. Anecdotally, I feel that my meditation has helped me to be more focused and more determined in other Mm. aspects of my life. Uh, Again, there's no hardcore study or evidence, but I do feel that meditation play a big part in helping me to quit smoking, Mm. to quit caffeine and to reduce significantly in my drinking. Mm. I'm sure there's some evidence out there which you probably would know. So Mm. could you help us to understand what are some consequential benefits that would apply or or come into play when we start practicing meditation? Mm, okay, sure. So what you have mentioned just now are more behavioral. So these are behavioral changes. And essentially, one of the positive research outcomes from practicing mindfulness, and when I say research outcomes, usually these research are not being done on people who have just practiced one-off sessions. Right? These are people who have been practicing continuously for some time. Let's say they went through an eight-week MBSR program. So you really need time to see that change. But overall, in terms of uh, mindfulness research, the, the outcomes are mostly positive. So we do see behavioral changes, and especially in terms of reducing what we call uh, self-destructive behaviors or maladaptive coping behaviors. And this is very crucial for, I think, our, our lifestyle nowadays. We have this problem of um, distracting ourselves when stress comes our way, right? So when we're stressed at work and we don't like the feeling of stress, it feels unpleasant to us, and that's when we decide, or the brain decides, you know, it's, oh, it's a good idea to turn your attention to something else that may offer you some kind of temporary relief that you you perceive it to be better. So case in point, some people may choose to smoke to relieve themselves from stress. Some people take coffee, they get addicted to uh, caffeine or drinking, or it could be something as simple as turning your attention to uh, phones, the use of phones, right? So, so addiction to social media and mindless scrolling and everything. So anything uh, that could start off as mild or neutral even, or even positive for us, for example, going to the gym, could turn into something addictive because the brain perceives it to be something that relieves us of the stress. So it's sort of like a diversion for us and it, it becomes an unhealthy diversion over time. So uh, mindfulness practice after some time, it actually helps us to reduce these because when we are able to have acceptance and be able to face our stress and to be able to manage it, we we find that we don't have the need to turn to them so much anymore. And of course, with more awareness of our mind and body, we realize that, hey, all these um, habits that we have are actually not 
you know, they're not very positive to our state of mind and our state of health. And that's when we decide, okay, you know, I, I want to take a step back from that. So behaviorally, that's one of the outcomes of mindfulness practice. And of course, we, we see this uh, from different aspects as well. So the more common ones would be our mental health. For example, there's a reduction in, in anxiety that we feel, a reduction in, in panic attacks or the intensities of panic attacks. So anxiety, panic attacks are becoming really common nowadays, especially when we live in such a high-strung environment, pressure cooker environment. It helps with the reduction of depression relapse, which I think is very important. Depression is becoming really common nowadays as well. And not only this, I think uh, you mentioned about being more focused and determined. So mindfulness does have a positive impact on our ability to focus because the practice is all about attention, where we choose to place our attention, and if we are able to sustain our attention in the right way. So although I wouldn't relate mindfulness directly to things like productivity, so a lot of uh, companies may come to me to say, oh, I want, I want my employees to be more productive and to be more efficient. So they think it's, it's sort of like a direct correlation to that. But essentially, it's really just about attention and where you choose to place your attention. So you could, with mindfulness practice, you could, you know, find that you can concentrate more and that's when you do a lot of deep, deeper work instead of being distracted all the time. But mindfulness is also becoming aware of a state of mind and body. So if you throw yourself into work, yes, you're concentrating, but is it too much? Are you tiring yourself out? So mindfulness helps you to observe your mind and body and that's when you realize, oh, okay, maybe I'm starting to get burnt out. I need to take a step back. I need to you know, manage and regulate my state of mind and body again before I continue. So this would be related more to the outcome of resilience, right? So we're able to bounce back from challenges, from difficulties more easily. And resilience is one of the positive impacts of mindfulness practice as well. So these are a few areas. And yeah, I also wanted to cover things like body. So mindfulness does have a positive impact on our immunity as well. It helps to boost immunity so we don't fall sick so often. And even if we do fall sick, we actually do recover quite quickly. And I myself can attest to this because I used to be quite a sickly person. And mindfulness has really helped me. So nowadays, I don't really fall sick so often. And even when I do, I realize that I recover in one or two days, which is quite amazing, I find. So outside of your current teaching, how much time do you spend on your personal meditation right now? So I have a routine. Uh, I meditate about an hour early in the morning and I find that this works best for me. So when I say an hour in the morning, I'm talking about a formal practice. So there's a difference between formal and informal practice. Formal means that you know you really set aside everything and you just take the time to maybe sit or something and just practice. So that's what I do, and it helps to deepen my skills. But then outside of this formal practice, as I go about my day-to-day -day life, this, these are also opportunities for me to practice as well. And I do that in every, every moment that I can, as many moments as I can. I see. So for I, I had conversation with some people about uh, how short my meditation period could be because mm -hmm. when I first start out, I only spend like five minutes then I went up mm -hmm. to 10, 15. Right now I'm doing 30 minutes mm, okay. and I actually get some pushback from other people that said 30 minutes, that's too long. You just do 15. 15 is just right, just enough. <laughs> is there really an ideal number when we mm. want to start meditating? Mm. Well, for, for beginners, if you let's say you want to start meditating, usually we will start with a shorter duration, of course. 
whether, you know, it's one minute, two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, I think it's up to the individual, however long that you're able to do it. If you look at research results out there, they're all based on different durations. Some research tells you, oh, 10 minutes a day continuously for a period of time, you, you're, we're able to see good impact or good outcomes. But the, the thing about this is, it's really important to ask whether these would be sustained. So you need to see this as a skill rather than a tool. So the more you practice a skill, the better you get at it and the more benefits you get out of it. It's just the same like going to the gym, right? So we work our muscles, we do beautiful muscles, but the minute we start work, uh, stop working out and that's when the muscles turn back into fats. So essentially building uh, the skills of mindfulness is like that as well. So the longer you practice, the more benefits or changes you might be able to experience. Although I wouldn't say, you know, that the longer, the better. For beginners, I think it's really important uh, to have consistency over duration. The focus should be on consistency. So I, for beginners, I would rather that you practice 10 minutes a day, every day, rather than one hour a week. I think that's definitely uh, more beneficial. Yes. Right. And I, I, I can see some common theme in the things that we believe would be very benefit, have been beneficial to us ever since meditation came into the picture. How about mm. for some of your clients out there? I'm sure that you have coached so many different customers. What are some of the unexpected benefits that they have told you ever since they picked up meditation? Mm, okay. Unexpected benefits. Well, the participants or the you know the the learners that I've had in my classes and in my coaching, they came in actually having a good idea about what this could do for them, you know, in terms of reducing their stress levels, in terms of reducing, let's say, anxiety or panic attacks or boosting positive moods, and they've all experienced that. So what I find and what the based on the you know the feedback that I've collected from them so far. I think what has been really surprising for my learners is that the, the real change doesn't come during the practice itself, right? So they could sit for 40 minutes a day and during that 40 minutes sit, you know, it could be one of the, even as the worst sits in, in their life. They, they get so frustrated, they're so irritated. Uh, the feel so tense, you know, they're really working hard and everything and nothing seems to be going well, you know, and, and yeah, they find that, you know, it doesn't seem to be working. But then they start to amazingly notice these little changes happening in their day-to-day -day lives as they go about their day-to-day -day routines or interactions. So it's sort of these outcomes sort of just creep in, these benefits creep in without you knowing it because essentially these are the skills at work over here, right? You may not notice it during the, the sit itself or during the practice itself formally, but in day-to-day -day lives, they are realizing, hey, when, you know, suddenly I become more aware, more aware of my body. Oh, I realize that, you know, this part of my body has some tension. So maybe I've been work overworking myself a little and then they learn to take a step back. Or they, you know, they start to notice more of the negative thought patterns that they have. And that's when, you know, the, the in-time practice comes in where they realize, oh, I have to step back and not uh, take on the identity of these self-defeating thoughts. And these benefits come as and when needed, right, in their day-to-day -day experiences. I've had people who, you know, the, the skills come in, you know, when needed. For example, learner who went through an MRI scan and she, she used to be quite claustrophobic and she really couldn't, you know, get through just in that tiny space in that scan. And after, you know, taking that class, she was actually able to 
go through the entire scan just practicing mindfulness one moment at a time throughout that, you know, I don't know how long it was. I think it was about 45 minutes or so. And she was able to practice throughout and remain calm throughout. And she was really, really surprised. Um, another learner, for example, she used to read, she used to lose sleep all the time. She wasn't asleep. Oh, she didn't sleep a wink at night. She had serious insomnia issues. And uh, after going through a few weeks of the program, she started sleeping soundly throughout the night. And she was really, really surprised. Even her doctor was really surprised. So uh, in terms of looking out for benefits, uh, the benefits are all out there, whether in terms of in, in writing, in terms of research benefits. The most important thing is not to expect any of these benefits, as, and especially during the, the practice itself and to see it as more of a skill-building kind of an approach. And if we are practicing it effectively, we should be able to experience these benefits trickling in into our day-to-day interactions and day-to-day lives. I'm starting to see similarities between meditation and exercising. You Mm. don't see immediate results, but over time you start to notice, hey, the pants is is looser, mm. the, the shirt is looser, or it may be tighter. And of course, all the good stuff like the dopamine hit coming in as well. On the flip side, would there be any group of people out there that you feel might not be suitable for meditation? Yes, I think so. I think so. So I, you know, whenever people approach me for MBSR or for mindfulness coaching, I would first and foremost always check with them whether they are currently, you know, seeing a therapist or they have any existing conditions. And so some of these, so some people tend to hope or they see mindfulness or meditation as sort of like a treatment or cure for the existing conditions that they may have, whether it's physical or mental or emotional. So it's important not to be able to see it as a a treatment, but more of a preventive thing. So um, if people are already seeing a therapist or a physician or a doctor, I would recommend that they continue and continue with with whatever treatment or medication that they have. So that's one. And uh, secondly, I think for as long as you have a normal attention span, working attention span, most people should be able to practice mindfulness and meditation. And it's really important to be able to practice this and learn with a qualified teacher, right, who is able to work you through some of the the common experiences. So that's another. And also, I think uh, intentions are really important. So before I accept any students, I usually would check in with them to check in on their intentions. Why are you taking this program? I've met people who uh, begin with a lot of doubt about this itself. And they're sort of in this to, to, sort of, to sort of prove themselves right that this doesn't work for them. So they're really self-defeating at the start. So this may be a little bit dangerous and I might you know, get them to do a little bit of work beforehand before actually jumping into the practice itself. Besides these, essentially, as long as you have a normal working attention and you're able to pay attention, you'll be able to understand instructions, uh, you can practice mindfulness because the range of practices that we see are pretty flexible, right? So we like we practice in different postures. So even if, let's say, you have certain health conditions, like you're not able to sit for a very long time, you can actually practice this uh, lying down flat on the back, for example. So it's, it's pretty flexible in that sense. I think attention is something especially sorely lacking in uh, kids nowadays. I personally mm. have an 11-year-old and mm. he doesn't have ADHD, but the doctor said that he has tra- uh, traits of ADHD and mm. I personally have tried putting him 
through some meditation app to go through a 15-minute meditation. But it just seems too long for an mm. 11-year-old. Uh, yeah. Would meditation even be suitable for kids to begin with? And if so, what would be a good first step for them to try? Mm-hmm. Okay. So for children, the attention span uh, tends to be shorter and we cannot expect them to be still for a longer period. So 15 minutes may seem very uh, short or pretty okay for an adult, but it's actually like eternity to a, to a kid. Um, I remember first um, introducing it to my nephew. He was four years old. And I actually didn't deliberately introduce it to him, but he he saw me sitting there and he started to imitate me. And he also sat down on the floor. He closed his eyes and he he just he was still for a total of four seconds, four seconds, and he couldn't take it and he just jumped right back up. So, but I was really proud of him for being able to stay still for four seconds because it's really hard for children to do that. So essentially, when we want to uh, have children learn mindfulness, we have to take it from a more, uh, different approach because they are more kinesthetic in nature, more active. So we can actually go with a different approach. For example, we would get them to do it during day-to-day routines. So one of my favorites is actually, you know, during um, meal when we are eating, we get them to open their senses. So when we open our senses to our food, to our drinks, uh, the kids are already in, they're already present. They're not all over the place. At least they have something to focus their attention on. So that's one. Uh, a second way might be I like to do a walking, a mindful walking practice with my nephew and just getting them to slow down their pace, not by a lot, just by just a little and to really ground and focus their attention at the bottoms of the feet, focusing on the sensations at their feet. They, they need something a little bit more concrete to focus on. And so the bottoms of the feet, how the floor feels under their feet actually is very helpful to ground their attention. So we can start with that as well. And also knowing that we don't expect kids or teenagers or youths to practice for an extended period of time. So a few minutes, you know, is, is actually very good. It's actually very encouraging already. That's good to know. Now, I'd like to go back to what you're doing for organizations right now. And you mentioned that your program is actually an eight-weeks program. I would imagine if this is something driven by the organization, mm-hmm. to put people through a program after working hours might be quite challenging. So mm-hmm. I would assume you're doing it during office hours. And how different would a program be for an organization versus something for an individual? Mm. It is. It has been quite different, actually, because I also understand that even though MBSR is very established and very evidence-based and very research-proven, a lot of companies and organizations find it very hard to invest in it, not just in terms of, not just financially, but also in terms of resources, time. Like you said, it's hard for employees to, to take two and a half hours every week to do this, right? And as a group. So it's a huge investment. So what I have been doing with organizations or companies is to modify it according to their schedule or their needs. And I find that in, let's say, in the Singapore market. So currently right now, I think in order to roll it out to the mass employees, to the, to the staff body, it's usually still quite at the introductory level, awareness level, where I'm conducting talks or workshops to introduce mindfulness giving them bite-sized experiences and telling them what's in it for them, how they might benefit from it and what positive outcomes they may expect 
from that practice. Besides these, I've also done uh, more uh, longer workshops, for example, full-day workshops. I've done uh, uh, multiple sessions. I've done three sessions, four sessions, weekly sessions with them, with a group of, of employees or management. Um, yeah, so these, these are the ways that we would modify for an organization. And it really depends on, for example, what kind of themes you want to focus on. So the, the basics of and the foundations of mindfulness practice is always the same. It's always about attention. But in terms of applying it to the context, it's really about where you want to place your attention on. So for some uh, companies out there, they may want to work on, let's say, the level of focus and productivity or motivation of, of employees. A more popular one would be, you know, to really take care of employee well-being, employee wellness, which I think a lot of HR, a lot of companies out there, management, they are starting to recognize to be really important to the bottom line of the company. It's the, the employee's wellness. So we're working, you know, for example, on helping employees manage their stress levels, improve their interactions in the workplace, becoming less re emotionally reactive at the workplace. Uh, with mindfulness practice. So we can go with actually different themes and in different structures that may work better for the organization. But essentially, it boils down to the fact that it is still a skill that needs to be built. So we can introduce it via a full-day you know, workshop, but how to sustain it within a company's culture is crucial. So this is something that I don't yet see in, in organizations. It's how you know, we, I could help them to sustain the practice of mindfulness or mindful culture in the organization itself. Not just It's not just about gathering staff together in one place and practicing at the same time. It's really about, you know, their day-to-day -day workings, their day-to-day -day routines and activities and interactions. How can we bring mindfulness into these moments for them? I think that's the truly beneficial thing. Right. So thank you so much for your time today. It has really been very insightful for me and I definitely hope so for the audience as well. So for people who are interested to learn more about yourself and what you do, where can they go to? Hmm. Uh, so essentially, they can uh, go to my website. I have quite a number of resources uh, up there, including some videos. I also have a free community practice. So if you go to www.mindfulmoments.sg, and then for a start, I encourage uh, people to join my weekly take a pause practice, which is about half an hour long. It's usually on Sunday evenings. So you can just have a taster of it and experience it. There are you can also connect with me on LinkedIn, especially for organizations and HR. If you're really interested in bringing mindfulness into the workplace itself, I would like to support you on that. And, you know, besides that, you know, uh, you can connect with me on my Facebook page, Mindful Moments or Erin Mindful Moments. Thank you so much, Erin. All this information will be added into the show notes. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me, Adrian. Thank you for listening to Level Up. You can refer to the show notes for links to more information about our guests and their business. If you enjoyed this podcast, it would be helpful to give a review on iTunes or follow me on Spotify. If you're using Overcast, please hit the star button under the episode. That will help get this podcast and the episodes out to more people who may find it useful. I'll see you in the next episode of Level Up.